when I was in seminary, I I was um, I guess there were a number of us in seminary who uh, were not accustomed to preaching. There, a lot of people, probably the majority of people in the seminary class I was part of, had preached before, that they had been um, preaching in a local church and then their gifts were identified and they were encouraged to develop them by attending seminary. I was one of the people who had been on a different track. I had been in the Bible study track. And the only time I had spoken before a congregation was um, at the request of my, my pastor, he said, I would love you to give your testimony. So I did that. But I had never preached from a text, a, a scripture passage, um, until I went to seminary. And as a result of that, I know the passage that I preached from because everybody preached from the same passage. It was what we called the brood of vipers speech. It was the passage in, um, in, uh, uh, the, the Gospels of John and, um, and, uh, sorry, the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, uh, chapter three of both, both, uh, Gospels, where John the Baptist, uh, confronts a group of Pharisees who had come out. They were kind of doing some quality control. They wanted to make sure that he was theologically orthodox as he, uh, did this baptism that he had become known for. So they went out to see where he was baptizing people. And John went charging at them and he said, he said, you children of snakes, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the judgment that is coming? He said, um, our, our translation, who warned you to escape from the angry judgment that is coming soon? This was the passage they had us start with. And I think there was probably a little bit of hazing in it just to, just to watch us squirm. But I think most of us found it a very difficult passage. You know, uh, it's not something preachers make a habit of. You know, people come to church on Sundays and we go, you brood of vipers, you know, so you don't see that a lot. Um, maybe in some churches you do, but I think um, certainly uh, most of my peers were were like me they were you know that's not the picture of Jesus we have it's not the picture we have of his church we think kind of when we think about Jesus we have a picture you know kind of a greeting card and you know on it is Jesus and he's got a little child in his lap and there's little lambs around his feet and that's kind of the mental picture we have of Jesus and so to have this passage where where John is really laying into people talking about uh, judgment and and fleeing the wrath that that was something that was very difficult for us and so so um I remember that passage and it wasn't the only one they had us do other things they gave us like six pot we had to pick from one of six different terrible scenarios and preach a funeral sermon and all these other things. So I think there was some hazing, but if nothing else, they did teach us to preach on difficult topics. So, um, uh, and I mention that because, because this passage is, um, typically, if you follow the, the common lectionary, uh, that passage, the, the Brood of Vipers passage is part of, uh, the, the, the series of, of passages that is read during Advent. And what they didn't do is they didn't pick the next week's passage to kind of round it out, which is the passage we heard today. If you follow that lectionary, what you often find is people will do the the brood of vipers, and then because they really wanted to get completely away from John the Baptist, they don't follow up the following week with with the, the, the passage that we're going to hear from today. But I for for all the trouble it was for me to 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 preach that message, my first message ever is the Brood of Vipers message. For all the trouble, I, I was glad to do so because, like I said, I had a different perspective. I grew up in a in a very um, a, a 
theologically liberal tradition. The Presbyterian Church is is on the theologically uh, left side of the the Christian spectrum, and so we tend to to see Jesus as as that happy person with the kid and the 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 go, uh, the, the baby sheep around him and so forth. Uh, lambs, that's the word. Um, and and so we do tend to have that happy picture. We're not we're not good with the uh, the fire and the brimstone, and um, that that makes it difficult for us to 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 accurately convey the full message of scripture because there is fire and brimstone in the in the scriptures john wasn't kidding when he talked about a coming wrath so we had to we had to learn how to look um, beyond our preconceived ideas beyond our our uh, low resolution image of jesus to see a, a richer and more full um Understanding of what Jesus was was about, who he was, and and the the particular mission that he had uh, to to unfold. And so, um, my guess is that that's probably true of a lot of us. That that we all tend to kind of round off the hard edges of Jesus. That that we we have a picture in our head, and maybe it has the kid on the lap, but but one way or the other, it doesn't have the hard edges. That that in particular, the things that we know Jesus doesn't smile at when we do. We kind of think, well, yeah, but. I, me and Jesus, we're like this. We're okay, and so it's good to get a fresh perspective. To to say, you know what? I should check into that. I should make sure that I really have an accurate picture of Jesus, and not just the, this little um, stereotype, this this little happy picture that's in my head. So it's worthwhile to get a um, a fresh picture, and it's not just worthwhile. It's important because Jesus told us in in the Sermon on the Mount. He said he said the person who hears his words and puts them into practice will be like someone who built his house on the rock. And then when the storms of life come, the house isn't washed away. And so if we're if we're not attending to what Jesus actually said, the, the things that Jesus told us to put into practice, if we've just got kind of, you know, the easy 20% of that in our head, then we don't really know what we're doing and we can't count on that promise being true for us that that in fact we will withstand the storms of our life. So it's worthwhile just as a to make sure we're not wrong, but also because as Jesus said it's very practical in order to avoid the storms of life or to get through the storms of life. So um, the the good news is that is that um, we have this uh, picture of Jesus um, that is in the scriptures, but more than that, we have the example. As I mentioned to the children, we have the example of um, John the Baptist, who showed us when he was wasn't sure that his picture was accurate. He sent a message to Jesus and said, "Can you straighten me out?" And so it's worthwhile looking at this passage to see how that works. Now, um, we're, we're beginning a, a whole block of scripture and it begins with, um, uh, this first verse where, where John, where, where Matthew is telling us, okay, I'm done with what I was just talking about. So he begins by saying, when Jesus finished teaching his 12 disciples, he's referring to chapter 10. He's saying, I'm moving on and here's where we're going. Jesus, he went on from there to teach and preach in their city. So Jesus is beginning a new, a new segment of his ministry in the way that John has organized his his biography, and so uh, we're going to pick it up um, right after that in verse um, two, and this is this is where we'll be for the next several weeks. We're going to be looking at this section of scripture to see the way that different people responded to Jesus and how they responded in particular when they thought that their picture wasn't accurate, when 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 their expectations 
did not align with the Jesus that they saw. So we're beginning now with John the Baptist. So it says, when John heard in prison about the things Christ was doing. So um, uh, who is John? So John John is somebody in prison, but but who is John? Um, uh, it, uh, this is John the Baptist. He's called John here in this verse, but um, earlier he was called John the Baptist back in chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the desert of Judea announcing, change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. He's announcing that, that God's Messiah would be arriving shortly. But then he went on and he said, he said some troublesome things. He said, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and tossed into the fire. And this is again why preachers try to avoid John the Baptist as much as possible. So this is John. This is the John. And he is now in prison. And uh, Matthew hasn't told us much about that. He's, he had this one line back in chapter 4. He said, when Jesus heard that John was arrested, he went to Galilee. So just that one line. He's saving it for chapter 14. He's going to give the whole details. He's going to tell the whole story about John the Baptist. But he's not there yet. Right now, all we know is that John's in prison, and he's, he's, he's referring back to that. If, if we could look ahead to chapter 14, but there's a much sim- shorter um, summary in Luke's biography of Jesus where it says this. It says, uh, but Herod the ruler had, had been criticized harshly by John because of Herodias, Herod's brother, Herod's brother's wife, and because of all the evil he had done. So John had a long list of critiques for Herod. He would have been one of those people he would have said the axe right at the foot of the tree for. Um, and the reason is because because um, Herod, This is there, there's a whole bunch of Herod's uh, offspring. The, uh, the original King Herod uh, was the one we hear about at Christmas. These are two of his sons by, by different um, uh, wives. So Herod Antipas is the King Herod. He, he married his niece Herodias, but first she had been married to her other uncle, um, Herod Philip, and, and so John said that's a bit ripe even for the first century. So, um, so John criticized him, and because kings are kings, they don't like being criticized. He threw John in prison. Now, uh, that's actually a good thing uh, for uh, that. That shows us something about John. It shows us that John was very well respected. That he was afraid to just kill him because in the first century, if you're a king, that's what you mostly do with inconvenient people. You know, <laughs> show me. Show me a man who's a problem, and my answer is no man, no problem. So, so that was the the general way that people operated in that time frame, and uh, they kept John around. Um, in, in that culture, they didn't keep a lot of people in prison. They would either kill you, or maybe if you really lucked out, they'd send you to the salt mines, you know, where you'd die, you know, working yourself to death over three years or something like that. But, but John, they kept around. Now he is going to be executed later, and we'll get to that in chapter fourteen someday. But. But in the meantime, all we know is that he's in prison and he still has access to his disciples. They come and go uh, periodically and talk to him. And that's where, where Matthew takes us. He says, he says, now when John heard in prison about the things Jesus was doing, he sent word by his disciples to Jesus asking, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? So who, what does he mean by the one who is to come? Well, if we go back to chapter 3, He's told us, this is part of John's message, that brood of vipers message. Um, he said, the one who is coming after me is stronger than I am. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and, because this is John, with fire. 
The shovel he uses to sift the wheat from the husks is in his hands. He will clean out the threshing area and bring the wheat into his barn, but he will burn the husks with a fire that can't be put out. So that's John, and he sends a message to Jesus because he's heard these things. His disciples have have told him some of the things about Jesus, and he's thinking, man, I was expecting fire. I was expecting lots and lots of fire. And I'm not seeing that fire. What's up with this guy? Is he, in fact, the coming one? Is he the one that I was predicting back in chapter 3? And Jesus doesn't say what we might expect. Jesus doesn't say, of course I'm the one. You know, I'm the Messiah. Instead, Jesus says, look, listen, what what have you been hearing? What have you seen? Jesus is, is saying, you know, do the math. You don't need me to tell you. You can just look at what I've been doing. You can listen to my message and decide for yourself. Am I, in fact, the coming one? He he encourages John to think it over some more and ask, is this, in fact, what the Messiah should be doing? So what does he mean by that? He says, he says go and report to John what you hear and see. Now, I, I mentioned that, that the way Matthew has organized his biography, it's a little bit... Um, jumpy aroundy as you, as you, as you, as I've been demonstrating. But one of the neat things about the way he's organized it is we know exactly what he's talking about because presumably we have been reading the whole thing straight through, right? We're not just plunging in in, ver- in chapter 11. We've been reading the whole thing through. And we've already heard a great deal of what Jesus was telling people. In chapter 5, 6, and 7, that is the, the Sermon on the Mount. So that's very representative of the things that Jesus was saying. So we know, we know the sorts of things Jesus has been hearing. Uh, people would have heard from Jesus, and we also know the things he's been doing, because chapters 8 and 9 is a, is a long list of miracles that Jesus has performed, and there's there's all kinds of there's all kinds of miracles that he's listing that that, that are listed in the chapters eight and nine. So we can see uh, with by, by reading John's uh, Matthew's account, we can see the sorts of things that Jesus was doing as well. And and what's particularly interesting if you if you look through chapter eight and nine, is you see not just the miracles that Jesus was doing, but who he was doing the miracles with. And so, for example, one of the people that, that he performed a miracle for was he stopped a flow of bleeding from a woman who'd been, who'd, who'd had it for many years. And, um, that would be somebody who was ritually unclean because of her illness and, um, would have been very much on the margins of society. And, and, um, he, he continues in that trade. If you look at, if you kind of try to look for a through line, across all those miracles. That's what we see. The, he mentions he mentions raising the dead. He summarizes he summarizes what, what he's been doing. He says, those who are blind are able to see. Those who are crippled are walking. People with skin diseases are cleansed. Those who were deaf now hear. And those who were dead are raised up. So the, the person he raises in this passage, uh, chapters 8 and 9, is the daughter of a synagogue ruler. And if women were, were second-class citizens in the first century, and they were at least second-class, maybe third or fourth, um, then a young woman, a, a child, was even more so. The fact that Jesus would go out of his way to, to raise a daughter, a man's daughter, um, rather than a more valuable son, told a lot about what Jesus was doing. Um, he he uh, he cured a paralyzed man, but the the person he cured was a slave, not just a slave, but the slave of a Roman officer 
in the occupying army. Jesus was reaching out across all the the, the out, out to the very fringes of society, people that would have been um, at best looked down on and probably despised. He he goes to tax collectors, he goes to foreigners, he goes to disturbed homeless people. And Jesus performs all these miracles. And then, instead of mentioning the, the really flashy one where he's out on the ocean, he's out on the Sea of Galilee, I should say, and he calms the storm. Experienced fishermen are throwing up over the, over the gunnels of the, of the boat, and Jesus stops the storm with a single command. Jesus doesn't mention that. Instead, he summarizes his miracles this way. He says, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. He says to John, by way of the disciples, he says, do the math. This is what I'm about. This is what God is about. I am the coming one because I'm doing the work of God. I'm going to the very edges of society. I am proclaiming good news, not just to a privileged few, not just to the the religious elite, but to everyone, man, woman, and child. And then he says this. He says, happy are those who don't stumble and fall because of me. This word stumble is is one of uh, Matthew's uh, favorite words that Jesus used. He uses it 21 times in this biography. It's it's related to our word scandal, and it means to be offended or or to be tripped. Literally, it, it does mean to trip. Uh, 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 the it's something you you trip over is a scandal. And so he says, people who are scandalized, people who trip up, according to me, I, I I'm sorry, but happy are those who are not offended, who do not stumble and fall away because of me. He's telling John, this is what I'm doing. This this is the mission that I have been sent here to perform. I do proclaim good news to the poor. I perform miracles of healing to the very edges of our society. This is what John needs to know. Is this the coming one? That's who Jesus is. So, what do we do with this? Well, Jesus is essentially saying the same thing to us. He's saying, happy is is the person who does not stumble and fall away because of me. If our expectations, if, if the picture in our head of Jesus and what he's about doesn't conform to the Jesus as he describes himself here, then it's up to us to decide, are we going to fall away? Are we going to be so scandalized by someone who would do those things that we say, nope, I'm not interested? Or are we going to say, you know what? I have been expecting, maybe like John, I was expecting more fire. But I need to adjust my thinking. I need to get a better picture of Jesus. That's the challenge that Jesus is presenting to us because happy are those who don't stumble and fall away. Because this is who he is. So how do we do that? How do we get that clear picture? We need to get clarity before we can decide, are we going to be offended by it? And the way we do that is is by actually reading the scriptures, by by looking at the, the things that Jesus said and, and, and did, by going back and, and reading chapters 5, 6, 7, and then 8 and 9, to actually see the message that Jesus proclaimed and to to hear about his miracles, but not just to read it like we would read a book, but to read it perfectly, to ask God to show us what 
What have I been missing? What 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 do I need to see here? Help me to see Jesus with with a fresh perspective. Help me to get a better picture of Jesus, not just a greeting card, not just a, a happy little picture with children and and lambs. So we need to do that. But then we need to say, what am I going to do with it? Is that is that who I want to follow? Is that who I want to lean my life against? Because that's who Jesus is. And we as a as a community of faith have the same have the same question. Imagine what it would be like if people, in order to get a clear picture of Jesus, could look at the church, could look at our church or any other church, and and remember that that the church is the body of Christ, that if they wanted a clear picture of Jesus, what he was about, what he was doing in the world, they could look at his church and they would see very clearly who Jesus is and what he is. And yes, some of them would still stumble because, like John, they were expecting more fire. Maybe they were expecting no fire at all. Jesus never tells John he's wrong about the fire. But I think the place we often make a mistake is we don't realize how much of the judgment that John spoke of fell on Jesus in our behalf. Imagine if the church presented a picture of Jesus that people could actually see clearly. They didn't have to be content with a greeting card or some half-remembered thing that they heard when they were small. Imagine if the church could actually see Jesus by looking at the church. That's something that we're called to do on his behalf as the body of Christ. And in order to do it, we need individually to make sure our own picture of Jesus is the correct one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the lesson of John to to not hold on to our preconceived ideas about Jesus, the the caricatures, the the little sketches that we have of Jesus, but to actually ask for clarity, to to ask him to show us that he is in fact the coming one, the one who came and will come again so that we can trust in him, so we can lean our lives against him, and so that we can be his body here on earth. We pray all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.